Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. What started out as a surprise gift from his grandfather led to quite the career for Ben Clymer, the founder and CEO of Hodinkee. After receiving his grandfather's Omega Speedmaster watch, Clymer began blogging about vintage watches back in 2008. He quickly discovered there was a tremendous market out there for content about watches. Today, under Clymer's guidance and leadership, Hodinkee has grown from a one-man shop to a company with more than 60 employees. Hodinkee buys and sells new and vintage watches as part of its growing e-commerce arm of the business, but it also features a print magazine, a podcast, a branded content studio, and a series of videos featuring watch aficionados like musician John Mayer, actor Fred Savage, comedian Aziz Ansari, and golfers Jack Nicholas and Greg Norman. Clymer is a 2005 graduate of Syracuse University with dual degrees from Whitman and the iSchool. He is our guest today on the Cuse Conversations podcast. Ben, thanks for making the time to join us. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to see, to see you again as well. Yeah, for our folks who are listening, Ben and I go way back. We went to high school together. Uh, we went to college together. I'm 2003. He's 2005. And it's really been cool, Ben, to watch your career kind of take off. It's, when you find someone you've known for decades now, we're at that point we can say that. Yeah. And achieve career success. I'm really happy for you, buddy. No, thank you. That, that, that's very kind, very humbling always. I mean, you know, you, you've known me a long time. And, and likewise, like, I'm, you know, I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, Brighton, to be specific. Uh, both of my parents are teachers, you know, don't really come from this kind of like high-end luxury world at all. And I think that's probably why Hodinkee worked. You know, I think it, we, we kind of view things in a very matter-of-fact way. And I think we, we speak to people about these, you know, occasionally really high-end products in, in a very matter-of-fact kind of approachable manner. And I think that that's why it works. What was it? Let's, let's go into your company a little bit, Ben, sure. before we get yep. to your Syracuse story. Yep. What was the thought process be- behind starting Hodinkee? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll bring in Syracuse a little bit. So, so before I went to, to Syracuse, my, my maternal grandfather, my mom's father, was kind of my hero. He was an entrepreneur. Um, he was the kind of guy that, that inspired me to want to be an entrepreneur. So when I got to Syracuse, I was, yeah, I, I did, uh, back then it was a school management, before it was Whitman. Um, you know, I applied to that school and really wanted to focus on business and entrepreneurship. And at Syracuse, I spent effectively my entire senior year working on business plans and kind of doing entrepreneurship uh, competitions. So I knew I wanted to do that even before Syracuse and certainly while at. And then when I went into one, I, I got my first job in, in Manhattan in management consulting and then in finance. Um, and, you know, to be totally frank, I just knew that I wanted to do something that excited me and something that like I genuinely wouldn't consider work. Uh, I always loved to write. Uh, I can say that I, I wasn't necessarily encouraged to be a writer, uh, but I always loved to do it. Um, and I loved uh, physical products. Like I love, you know, kind of beautiful things and well-made things. Uh, and so I was working at, at UBS in 2008, you know, during that, that, finan- that first financial, financial crisis of our lifetime anyway. Um, and, you know, things just really took a weird turn, you know, and I saw, you know, I was very young, I was 25, or maybe even younger, uh, in, in 2008. And, you know, UBS and large banks, just like any large company, you know, look, they've got their their pecking order, they've got their waterfall of how things are going to go. And I was at the very bottom of it. And I, I just saw how large companies, not always, but but can treat people. And that didn't necessarily include me at, at the bottom of it. But you know, middle sure. managers, and you know, anybody but the very top. 
And it was just really off-putting to me, you know, just, and again, that's no judgment on anybody that works for a big company or anything like that. It's just different. It just wasn't what, what I wanted. Um, and so, you know, we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to, to go out and do something on my own. And at the time, I really wanted to get into media. I love the idea of, of media, even though, you know, I wasn't uh, a new house or anything like that. I always, I love to read, I love pub publishing and, and that media side of the business or business. And so I started writing about first my grandfather's watch on Tumblr back then, uh, and then writing about other watches uh, and taking pictures and going to auctions, you know, Christie's and Sotheby's here in the city, you know, bringing a little Nikon camera and taking photographs myself and saying, oh, like, here's, you know, here's the watch that was owned by Mahatma Gandhi, or here's a watch that was owned by Steve McQueen or Paul Newman or something like that. Uh, and it really just kind of took off from there and took off in a major, major way. Uh, to a point where we had people then coming out of nowhere saying, hey, would, you know, can, we, can we pay you to advertise alongside your content? Uh, and at that point, I realized we might have a business. Uh, ended up applying to uh, journalism school here in the city. Uh, ended up getting in, doing a master's in journalism. And it was there that, that some of my professors were like, hey, wait a minute. Like, you're a young guy. You've got ostensibly a blog about watches. And you're paying for, uh, for, for Columbia Journalism School with that? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. You know, like, I guess, I guess it is what we have, you know. Uh, and so very quickly, we, we realized that this could be a real thing. And then, you know, while my other, you know, kind of classmates at Columbia were, were thinking about, you know, do I work for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal? I was like, I've already got a job. I'm just going to continue to do what, what I do. Um, I hired uh, or partnered with somebody that I met uh, in journalism school who's still with us to this day as our first, basically first employee. Um, and uh, it's been great ever since. And, you know, now we've moved into e-commerce. We have a magazine. We have a few podcasts. So it's a full media company, and we still view media as kind of our defining trait, uh, and certainly the, the top of the funnel for sure, and what makes us who we are. Um, but how we make money is, you know, we have a, a really robust e-commerce platform, so we're an authorized dealer for about 25 different you know, kind of high-end watch brands, including Apple, for example, uh, as well as Tag Heuer, if you know them, or Omega, uh, you know, pretty, pretty big brands. Um, and so, you know, consider us a one-stop shop for content. Uh, and for commerce uh, in this space. And we, we've, we've, I think we've done a really good job at, at appealing to younger people. You know, th this category was really dominated by, you know, before us anyway, the average, you know, watch consumer was 65 years old, white, and a millionaire. You know, I mean, it's just like things that are just like, you know, it's, it's exactly who you would think, right? And, you know, when I was 25, I certainly wasn't 65. I happened to be white, but I can tell you I wasn't a millionaire, you know. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's like, wait a minute, like there are so many young guys out there that like care about craftsmanship and engineering and style and the whole thing that goes into watches. But they, but they don't want to be treated as if like you know, the, the whole champagne and caviar thing to me, it feels really passe. And I think like once you experience that once in your life, you're like, okay, like I've had enough champagne. I, I just, I would just like the product. I'd like, you know, my time is more valuable than, than going to Madison Avenue or whatever. Um, and so we're, we're, we talk about the love of product in a different way. You know, if you look at other publishers like the Rob Report or even Forbes and Fortune sometime, who are all great magazines, you know, they tend to focus on the cost of things. We tend to focus on the craft of things. Uh, and I would say that's the kind of defining difference between us and some of the other kind of like luxury media folks uh, out there. What was the response, Ben? And I totally get it. You've got a passion for watches. And we'll talk about the very first watch you own. We'll talk about sure. the impact of your grandfather's gift of his watch. Yep. What was the response when you ventured out there and you're blogging, you're doing posts yeah. on Tumblr about yeah. vintage watches? What kind of reception did you receive from an audience? And was there a demand for it? 
Yeah, I mean, the, to, to be honest, the reception was incredibly strong, I think. And that's why, that's why we're here today, you know? And I think what, again, what allowed this to succeed, I, you know, I talk about coming from like, you know, very kind of normal middle-class, you know, upbringing, uh, was also the fact that like, I didn't know there was such a thing as a publicist. I truly didn't even know what like, PR was. I didn't know what a marketing, um, you know, kind of stunt was. I didn't know what a press junket was. I didn't, like, I'm not from that world. And like, if you're not from it, how would you know that? In, in particular back then. And so, you know, now my, my peers, my, my quote unquote competitors, if you can even call them that, but, but not really, they're all friends. Um, you know, they were really, and so are influenced by the industry because they were working for ad dollars. Again, I didn't even know how an ad deal would work when I started this thing. So I was just writing about the stuff that I liked. And at the time that was really vintage, you know, old, old watches. Um, and I think that really paved a, a, a way to the top for us because people knew that we were not under the influence of, you know, people like big pharma and big tobacco. Like there is kind of that in, in, in big luxury. Like there are large publicly traded conglomerates, Richemont, LVMH, Swatch, you know, big groups like that, that, that really do wield a lot of power over publishers, including Connie Nast, Hearst, New York Times, like, you know, big, the big boys, uh, but certainly the smaller guys. And I just didn't know those guys existed. Now I obviously do when we work with them, but it's a, it's a different thing. Like we, we approach this thing from, a, from an enthusiast point of view, as opposed to a, a publisher's point of view, if that makes any sense. No, it, it absolutely does. And again, the passion shows through, Ben, and you can't just go and done what you've done with Hodinkee and take it from this one man shop. Cause you've got more than what? 50 employees now. Yeah, We're at uh, we're at 62 right now, which is unbelievable. The, the growth that you've taken place. What is the key before we go to the semantics of the yeah. company itself and your multimedia productions, what's the biggest secret to success? How did you grow Hodinkee from a one man shop to where it is now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, the first and foremost, it's like, know what you don't know, right? I mean, just like understand and, and be appreciative and, uh, and humble around those that have come before you. Like, you know, even though I'm very proud of all that we've done, like, I know we weren't the first people to do this. I, you know, thankfully for me, like, I wasn't looking at what they were doing. I didn't even know that, you know, th these kind of other luxury players existed. Had I, I probably would have tried to mimic them in some way. And because, because I didn't, we didn't, you know, we created something in, entirely new. But I think the reason for our success, I, I, you know, I look, a lot of it is right place, right time, just like anybody. I mean, Bill Gates often says half of his success is due to timing. Um, you know, so th there's that, you know, we kind of also came around, there was this big movement in menswear. So like men's fashion in 2008 or so about um, heritage and Americana, you know? So like kind of when like, b before the, the Mad Men kind of phase took off when everyone was dressing like skinny ties and things like that, there was this thing like, you know, Levi's became cool again. And like, you know, guys were wearing white t-shirts and like uh, Wolverine boots and things like that. And the idea that like, there was a, a, a watch component to that, which at the time meant like vintage Rolexes and Speedmasters that went to the moon and like, you know, just kind of cool guy stuff. Um, that, that worked out from a, from a timing perspective incredibly well. It just aligned perfectly with what was happening at, at scale. Uh, and so the likes of GQ and Esquire and the guys that became the, the, the thought leaders in, in the menswear world, which is much bigger, obviously, than the watch world, uh, they embraced us in, in a meaningful way. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we are super dynamic and the decision making, at least until 2015, was singular. It was me. Like I owned 100 percent of the company. It was it was whatever I wanted to do. We would do. I would talk with my, my one or two other employees for sure. But, you know, there wasn't a board to get approval for uh, for anything. If we wanted to start selling straps, which we did on, on the Internet in 2012, that was as simple as me placing an order for some straps from a friend in Italy and putting them up on Shopify. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you know, that was our first foray in e-commerce. We blew out, you know, probably 50 or 100 straps in the first afternoon, covered by Hypebeast, GQ, Esquire, whatever. 
uh, it was around then when, when John Mayer kind of first reached out and said, I love what you're doing. Um, and then, uh, you know, we went into e-commerce in a meaningful way. And I think, you know, if, if you look at a lot of, a lot of publishers, they often tout how, how engaged their audiences are, right? They say, okay, you know, John's going to read this story in whatever, in the Rob Report, and because of that, he's going to buy a Rolex or whatever, you know? And that, that is certainly true to some degree. What we found is that our audience was spectacularly engaged. I mean, like shockingly engaged to the point where like it was actually almost like unbelievable. And so we were, were met with that kind of feedback when we go to advertisers and say, hey, like these guys are buying $200,000 watches because of this story that we wrote on this site. And there's like, no way, whatever, like, sure, you know. And I was like, no, 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 like, trust me, like, I've got emails to validate this. People are, you know, re, you know re, re, uh, writing this. But still, you know, the brands weren't, you know, I think giving us our due uh, in terms of advertising deals and things like that. So I said, look, like, if you don't believe me, like, make us a dealer, make us, you know, give us the opportunity to prove it. And by the way, we don't need a store in Soho or on Madison Avenue. Like, we're going to sell this stuff on the internet. Um, and so we did that and kind of the rest is history, you know, and now, you know, I think this year we've done, I think 18,000 orders, something like that. Um, you know, I mean, our average price point for, for the, for the watches is above four or $5,000. You know, people are buying, we've sold, we sold, a, we sold a recently, we sold a $250,000 watch on online. Um, you know, I mean, people trust us. And I think when you have a brand that, that is, is, you know, kind of symbiotic with, with knowledge and, and understanding, then people will, will actually want to spend money with you online. Um, and so, you know, that, that was the, the big thing, you know, it, had we not jumped from pure media into this kind of hybrid commerce content model that we're in right now, I think the tale would be very different. And I have several friends, I mean, dozens and dozens of friends that are Condé Nast, Hearst, Times, Forbes, Fortune, you know, the, the big boys in New York, that are, that are met with slightly different fates than we are right now. I mean, media is going through a real reckoning right now, in particular in the age of COVID, right? I mean, all these brands like thought they were gonna have these big marketing budgets this year and then headquarters would say, sorry, like you have to pick one uh, you know, partner instead of 10. Um, you know, thankfully for us, we're not relying on brands anymore. We're relying on people, on you. And I think like we are very, very strong in connecting with people. Uh, and I think that that's what's allowed us to, to work. What was it about, I want to go back in time a little bit with your history with watches before we go into how much watches have changed, high-end watches you guys can sell on Hodinkee, your grandfather's watch, Mm -hmm. what significance did that play and what does it mean to you? Do you still have the watch? What kind of special role does that watch have in your life? And and how did that really spark this fascination with with watches? Yeah, I mean, my, so my, my fascination with with watches was, was not it wasn't the inaugural type of, of focus. So like my, my father in, in Rochester was at RIT. He was a photographer. He gave me a light meter. So like a handheld light meter back when you needed one of those before cameras had light meters built in. So it's like a small hand, it looks like a compass, like small handheld gauge driven thing. Uh, so I, I was obsessed with light meters early on. Then I was in Boy Scouts uh, and in, in Boy Scouts, uh, compasses you know, were a thing as were watches, right? Like those are two kind of critical tools for any, any mountaineer. Um, and then from there, I mean, the mechanical watch is kind of the, the, the pretty, you know, pretty traditional um, next step if you're into things like that. Uh, they are marvels of engineering. They, are, they can be beautiful. Uh, they have fascinating stories associated with them. And beyond all of that, they are real legacy objects. And I think something that really spoke to me about it was like, I am a highly sentimental person. You know, if you look at my apartment around here, it is just littered with things that were my parents, my grandparents, you know, my sister, et cetera. Uh, and the watch is, is multi-generational. And, you know, you know, I have a watch right here, like this watch will be here long after you and I have passed on, you know? And I, you know, and I think that is incredibly charming and I, I just love the idea of it. 
And my grandfather gave me his Omega Speedmaster, which was his watch. Like it was a watch he literally just took off his wrist and said, here you go. Uh, I still have it. It's sitting about 10 feet away from me right now. Um, you know, it is, it means everything to me. It is, it is absolutely my most prized possession. Um, you know, certainly not the most valuable watch, but to me, that doesn't matter at all. It gave me the life that I have right now. Without that watch, none of this happens for sure. And I think that is another thing to remember for all of us that like he's, he's now passed away. And he got to see the beginning of the Dinky, but not certainly not, you know, the, the, the prime, the, you know, the great years. Um, but it's amazing to think that he probably has no understanding or had no understanding at the time of how meaningful that gift would be to me. Like it has literally given me this life for which I'm so proud. And I think it's an amazing thing to, for all of us, remember like these little moments in time when you, you know, a little act of kindness or whatever can really change somebody's life. And this literally changed my life. Uh, and I think without it, I'd probably still be working at UBS or at a consulting firm. And I'm, I'm sure I'd be happy. Um, but certainly wouldn't have the level of, of kind of uh, enjoyment that I have today, for sure. So super, super meaningful, for sure. To hear that nostalgic tie back to something that really meant so much to, to your grandfather and to pass it on to you, it signifies that watches are not just about telling what time it is. They're right. time pieces, but they can also really celebrate those cherished moments in our life. And I read a story that was published online where you were talking about how the grandfather's watch, you had at all your special milestone events. Yep. What, what does it mean to have that piece? That, again, it, it's almost like it's commemorating the day and making sure every time you look back on it, you can think, oh, I had this when I graduated high school, when I graduated Syracuse, I graduated yep. Columbia. The day yep. you asked your fiance to marry you, that's such a cool thing. To, it's living history. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. And I think that is, um, that is, as I said, one of the most charming things about watches. I think it's really easy to get caught up in, oh, that's, you know, who would spend $5,000 on a watch? And I, I get that. Like, you know, I'm the first person to admit that nobody needs this stuff. But it can be really rewarding. It can be really fun. Uh, you know, it is an interesting way to invest. There are a lot of people that are into that now. And I think more than that, like, I'm, the thing that I'm most proud about with Odinki is that it has created a community. And there are so many guys, you know, maybe not unlike yourself or not unlike myself, where it's like, you know what, like, look, I, I live in the city. I'm from upstate New York. I'm a pretty normal guy. Like, sure, I like sports. I like cars, whatever. But, like, I really needed kind of an island to live on socially. And so, and what I mean by that is like, I've got my friends from, from grad school, undergrad and, and home, et cetera. I've got friends from work, but like being part of another community. And in this case, a really global community uh, is really a neat thing. And if you see our, if you see Hodinki or Instagram or whatever, you see how many people there are. I mean, we see around 2 million people a month that are just obsessed with this stuff and they're commenting and they're, you know, they're interacting with each other. And I think that is a really, really neat part of, of, of the watch world that, that doesn't get too much, too much attention. Now you mentioned earlier, you sold watches in upwards of $250,000, yep. the average price point being four to $5,000. Yep. What, what makes a high-end watch and what differentiates a four to $5,000 watch from a quarter of a million dollar watch? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, it is just simple supply and demand, right? So like they're, they're very rare, like Rolex is, is the brand that everybody knows. It is, it is a wonderful brand, one of my favorites to work with them closely. They make, they make like kind of serially produced commercial grade watches and those watches will last forever. The watches, and those are, you know, between say five and 10,000. The watches that we're talking about are 250,000 that are Rolexes are very rare. So are they better made than, than the Rolexes of four or five? Absolutely not. They're just far more rare. And that's a simple supply and demand thing. Um, but you know, if you're talking about new watches that are that expensive, you, become, you, you kind of elevate the product from something that is made at a consumer level, like a Rolex or an Omega, 
which, you know, a lot of machines involved, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's in Switzerland, of course. Um, but when you get above that, it really comes down to, to the amount of handwork that goes into it. And what I mean by that is actual handwork, like men and women in the Valley de Joux in Switzerland and, and Geneva and Zurich, you know, taking these individual components and hand filing them and hand assembling them. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to the cost of it comes down to, to human capital for sure. Um, and you know, it, 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 it is no longer a time telling device at that point. It is, it is an object of art or it is just pure art. You know, I mean, it really is, uh, you know, there, there's so, I mean, to give you an idea this morning, I was bidding on a watch at, at Sotheby's in Hong Kong. And then in the same sale, there were, there were Picasso's and Matisse's, you know, I mean, like it is sold alongside those type of products at a very high level. Um, you know, that, that is a minor, minor segment for sure. Like that is not the average consumer. It's not even the average reader. Uh, but that is, that is often what gets the headlines. You know, there was a headline a few years ago when Paul Newman's Rolex sold, it sold for $19 million. You know, like that is, that's not real. Like that's not reality. There's, there's one of those obviously, but it does happen. And you know, that is, is kind of what, you know, what the headlines, uh, tend to be about in the mainstream media. $19 million. That's a nice, yeah. uh, nice score if you can get it, but obviously most of us yeah. <laughs> don't have that kind of coin lying around to, sure. to drop on it. What is it been about? I know a lot of times, you know, people rely on their iPhone to, for so many things. Apple watches are really exploding. It seems like you've met the industry where it is and you're not just focused on the cool mechanical watches. How much has Hodinkee adjusted and changed literally with the times. Yeah, look, I think we, we are, we're very pragmatic people. Like we are not, there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of people in our industry that are like militantly against smartwatches, in particular Apple, because they're you know, the biggest company in the history of the world, you know? Um, you know, we don't feel that way. In fact, I was, a, I was an early um, consultant on the Apple Watch before it launched. You know, like I, I believe it is one of the, the most important objects in, in, our lifetime, in our lifetime, at least, you know, the past decade or so. I think you know what it, what it's about to start doing with health is going to literally change the course of people's lives. Um, we are big believers in it to the point where we dedicate a podcast, a video, or you know some sort of you know primary kind of real estate on the edit side uh, to Apple every time a new one comes out. We are also now an authorized dealer of Apple Watch products, so you can buy an Apple Watch right through us. Um, you know, we pay attention to what Google's doing. We pay, pay attention to what Tag Heuer's doing. Like this is like, again, we live in reality and it would be foolish not to be paying attention to an Apple Watch when in fact, Apple Watch is the number one watch on the planet right now anyway. Um, you know, so we're, we're believers in it. I, you know, I, look, I'm not, you know, I'm wearing a Tudor right now, but you know, if I go work out later, I'll put on an Apple Watch and they, everything has its, its purpose for sure. You mentioned, uh, you know, Hodinkee being this multimedia company. It's so cool. Sure. You've got the podcasts. I do want to go to probably your most famous, well-known celebrity interaction with, with John Mayer. Yeah. Uh, he was on uh, a Talking Watches video on YouTube that you did. And yep. I was looking at the second one earlier today before we recorded. You caught up with John five years later. This yeah. video has exploded in the yeah. number of views, and it's unbelievable. How did you get connected with John Mayer in the first place? That, that shows the power of the internet, of entrepreneurialism, and, and certainly of watches. So when I was talking about, we started selling straps way back when, probably eight years ago. And that day, the day that we launched our strap collection, I got an email, truly in, in, in our contact folder that said, hey, John Mayer here, big fan, let's chat. And I was just like, all right. Like, you know, I looked it up and like, you know, his email was like John Mayer at Mac, by the way, that's not actually it, but it's something like that. <laughs> um, you know, like, and it's very like, very like this, this has to be an imposter, you know? Um, and it's and I was just like, all right, sure. So like, I emailed them back. We started chatting. Uh, we just really hit it off. Like, you know, we're about the same age at the time. He was living in the city, and so was I. Uh, we are, you know, 
interested in the same things. He is far financially, you know, much more financially able than I am. Always has been, always will be. Uh, much better with the ladies too. But you know, it's one of those things where like we, we really hit it off on a on a very sincere level. And I consider John one of my one of my best friends to this day. And he has become an investor in in Hodinkee for the past five years. He's become one of uh, our most vocal supporters. Uh, you know, he kind of represents watches in the Hollywood kind of crowd. He lives in L.A. now. Um, and so, you know, he's been great about introducing me to, to other people that are in the community that have become also good friends. You know, Aziz Ansari, Trevor Noah, people like that, uh, that are really into into what we're doing and just great people. Um, but, yeah, Mayer is he is a he is a force. I mean, he's just, you know, we were chatting briefly before we started recording. He is one of the most creative people I've ever met, hands down. Uh, obviously wonderful musician, but the way his mind works and his ability to tell stories and kind of transmit the right tone and also the right pitch at the right volume is just amazing. When he's talking about, about watches, certainly, which can be perceived as so obnoxious, right? I mean, like watches can be like, who cares about this stuff, you know? And yet this video, the first one that we did, you know, five or six years ago has become kind of internet like lore in some ways. And even the guys that don't like, I'll get stopped on the street multiple times a week saying, hey, you're the guy from that video, you know? Um, and it's become, it's become more just a sensation. Um, and, you know, it, it is completely due to him, certainly. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you find somebody that you really click with. And, uh, and I think, you know, we kind of help each other out in, in certain ways. And he's just, a, he's just a great guy that has always been there for me uh, and for Hodinkee when, when we needed him, for sure. It's unbelievable, Ben. And just hearing your, your career arc and, and the, the journey you've gone from, again, working at that UBS cubicle, you're, you're blogging yeah. on the site about, digital, about watches and your love yep. of watches. And, and now you're, you're having videos with John Mayer. You're doing your yeah. own podcast. You've got that own multimedia center for Hodinkee. Is it a little bit surreal how yeah. much this industry has taken off? Look, I mean, all of this is surreal. I mean, the fact that like you care enough to even chat with me right now is surreal. You know what I mean? Like, I'm extremely, I'm just happy to be here. You know, as I often say, like, it's so easy to, to find little things to complain about. Could we be bigger? Could I be wealthier? Could we be better looking? Like, of course, you know what I mean? But it's just like, it just, it just doesn't matter. I'm so thrilled that I get to spend my, my day doing something I care about. Look, are, are watches the most important thing in my life? Definitely not. And I think like that is the right way to think about all this stuff. I am more proud of the company, the people that we've been able to provide for, our 60-some employees, the people that I've met than, than any, anything financially related for sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, if you talk to anybody, including the Bill Gates of the world or the Warren Buffetts or, or Elons or whatever, and ask them about imposter syndrome, like they think about it all the time, you know? And I think like, I, I certainly think about that when, um, you know, so a man named Tony Fidel who created the iPod and Nest uh, is, is on my board and he's a good friend. And it's just like the fact that I'm talking to this guy about like business strategy is just like surreal to me. The fact that he cares enough about this little blog that I created <laughs> or me is shocking. And, you know, similarly for, you know, when I'm, you know, I, you know, doing stuff with Jay-Z or Mayor or whatever, it's just like, wow, it's like shocking to me that they care, you know, but they do. And I think like that has been so amazing. And everybody we've met with, you know, a few exceptions because life is life. Everyone has been wonderful, you know, and it's, I think like if you do something that really makes people excited, um, then, then you're gonna find you're gonna find people that, that just want to want to embrace you. I mean, like Fred Savage, for example, is a massive. We did a video with Fred Savage, um, yeah. <laughs> and and Fred is just like one of the loveliest human beings I've ever met. And uh, and he like he was so excited to meet me. And I'm like Fred, dude. Like I grew up with you. You know, like you're Kevin Arnold. Like, I grew up like you're like you're my best friend. You don't know me, but you're my best friend. Uh, and it's it's so it's so charming when you meet people that like really appreciate you the same way that you appreciate them for sure. 
I love you can drop in there subtly Fred Savage, Aziz Ansari, you know, John Mayer, all the Jay-Z, yeah. the references you've worked with. But no, it goes to speak that there's really this clientele, obviously, for the watches you're putting out there. And it's so happy oh, yeah. to hear, you know, the success. And I want to go back a little bit, Ben, to Syracuse. Yep. And what role, you talked a little bit about the entrepreneurial sense of it, but how did Syracuse, yeah. your time at Whitman in the iSchool, how did that really, yeah. you know, what role did that play in your career development? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think look, the, the one thing when I, when I was applying to school, I knew that I wanted to go to a business school. I didn't really know why. I didn't understand that. Like, you know, I just I didn't understand that, like you didn't have to go to a business school to be in business. You know, like I just like, <laughs> oh, I want to be in business. I'm going to a business school, you know. Um, but I also knew that I was always a tech guy. Uh, and so doing iSchool with it, uh, it was called IST back then. Um, made a lot of sense. And in, in many ways, it was the perfect hybrid education for me. Like the business school allowed me to do, uh, I was part of the, the Kaufman uh, entrepreneurship program, um, which I, I believe is still around at, at Syracuse. Uh, and then at, at IST, you know, it was, it was more kind of like, you know, there were, there were coding classes, right? I mean, there were things that like, back then felt really kind of like over in left field. Uh, whereas today, everyone learns coding, like that is the new language, you know? Uh, and I think having the, the, the dual understanding of the tech product side, which we, I, we have engineers on staff at Odinky, like, like I need to understand that side, at least to some degree, as well as the strategy and entrepreneurship and even finance and accounting side uh, was, was really a great hybrid. And I would encourage many people to try both of those things. I'm not sure how the curriculum has changed, but having an understanding of digital product uh, was super, super important in my success. And I credit that to the IST or the iSchool for sure. Um, because again, it's like, look, I mean, I, I created my Tumblr and then I, I built the first version of Houdini not on Tumblr myself. Like I, I coded that in HTML, you know? And, you know, back then I was doing C++ and, and things like that. And I wasn't very good, but like I could, I could put it on the internet. You know what I mean? Like it was good enough. It was serviceable. Uh, and then when I realized like, all right, like, look, I need to take this seriously. I could at least speak the language to the people that I needed to, to get something professional done. Uh, and that was that was a huge win for me. And had I not had that training or understanding of how HTML works or whatever, I don't I don't think I would have gotten out the door. Honestly. So I, I you know I loved my my time at, at both those schools. I think for me, I wouldn't have done it differently. Like I think it was great for me to have both of those kind of curriculums in in my mind at the same time. Uh, so very close with many friends from there. I was with a friend uh, from Syracuse in fact this past weekend who lives in Nashville. Um, so yeah, no, it was uh, it, it was it was great for sure. What advice would you give to somebody who's, let's say there's a current student or a young alum who's listening, who they hear your story and think, oh my gosh, I can really make a passion and a living out of yep. something as niche and targeted as, as these watch industry that you're yep. focusing on. What's your advice to someone who wants to try to find their own joy and passion like you've found? Yeah, I, I think first of all, like specialization is everything, you know, and if you look at like these, these, these big old newspapers and magazines that used to be everything the lives and the times and the even the Forbes and the fortunes and the GQs like those don't mean as much anymore because like if you want like if you want advice on let's say sneakers there's StockX there's Goat there's um, uh, you know there, there's let's say 10 other websites that specialize in sneakers right you want advice on watches you've got Houdinki you want advice on clothes you've got very specific forms about clothes I think the idea of specialization is paramount today. Like you have to pick a niche and the more niche it can be, the better, you know, let's not go hyper niche. Um, but I think the idea of something like being a, an expert in something uh, is the first, step. you know, if, if you want to launch your own thing, nobody needs another GQ. Like you just don't, you know, uh, and keep in mind, I, I work for GQ, like I'm a columnist for them. So I love them. Um, but it's one of those things where do that, you know, specialize in something, 
realize the importance of the dev side, the digital side, because again, without my ability to create the first website, there's no Hodinkee period, you know, the, nobody's reading anything anywhere. Um, and then beyond that, it's, it's just try, you know, and I think that is the greatest piece of advice that, that, that I often give to people is like, had I not tried this crazy thing to write about my grandfather's watch, like I wouldn't be here. And, you know, to this day, it's like there was no business plan, still isn't really. Uh, you know, I just wanted to do something that I enjoyed. And then all of a sudden it, it kind of took off. But I never would have known that there'd be an appetite for this stuff until I tried. And, you know, when I say try, like, don't, don't just put up like one post, you know, like I was grinding every day of the week for probably a year and a half or two years before we crossed 500 users or 500 readers, you know. But like I was doing it mostly as an expression of myself for myself at the time. Um, because I was, I was bored at work, honestly, um, and wanted to, I just needed an outlet. Um, and I think like, you know, you, you can't, you can't expect to be a win. Uh, you can't expect to, to win day one. You know, you really have to put in the time, be humble. You know, I mean, as, as Conan O'Brien, I think said when he was going through that, that kind of turbulence with, with Jay Leno, he's just like, you know, if you, if you're nice to people and put your head down and work hard, like you're going to get somewhere, you know what I mean? And like, that's all you really need to do. You also have to have the right timing and the vision and the relationships and all that. But, you know, the timing thing was organic. I had zero relationships in media or watches when I started this thing. And if you do something special that like those will come. And I think, you know, you don't be afraid of, of trying anything at all. You alluded to this earlier with how watches are going to change with health ramifications. Yeah. Can you comment a little bit more about what you think the future of watches will hold specifically as it pertains to people's overall health and well-being? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, I think, so I'll, I'll expand a little bit to, to, to wearables, you know? So the, the Apple watch right now, you know, it, it now can, can give you a rough idea of blood oxygen levels, which is obviously very important during the, the age of COVID. Um, you know, it's got heart arrhythmia, et cetera. You know, Apple is currently working with Aetna, the United States largest insurer, to, to have uh, underwriting um, and subsidization for Apple Watches. I think within time, uh, you know, within a, a year or two, I think Apple Watches will effectively be covered by your insurance broadly. Uh, and at that point, why wouldn't you wear an Apple Watch when it can detect your oxygen level, when it can detect, you know, heart arrhythmia, et cetera? Uh, I think those are... Those are those are, are wonderful things that are very superficial, that are very, I shouldn't say that, at a very, you know, kind of easy to understand level. But I think the idea of, of health and wellness, which is such a broader topic, is just everywhere right now. And like you see me, for example, like I'm wearing this right now. I don't know if you can see it there. This is a, it's called an aura ring, which is a fitness tracker that looks like a ring. Uh, that is a ring. And, uh, you know, it allows me to know what time I should be going to bed. If I have been exposed to too much blue light before I go to sleep, if I'm getting good sleep, and if I am, is it deep sleep or REM or is it, uh, is it super, you know, light sleep? And I think the idea of, of a watch as kind of the ultimate wearable, most likely Apple Watch, but Whoop does a great job and Fitbit and all these other guys. Um, you know, I think there's just amazing potential to have so much data around your own health and wellness uh, that I think we're going to see huge, huge growth in, in, in that department for sure. We'll make sure to be on the lookout in the watch, Ben, for uh, everything sure. you do moving forward. A little pun intended out there with uh, Benjamin Clymer, the CEO and founder of Hodinkee. We've really appreciated your time and your insights. A fascinating orange success story, Benjamin. Nothing but the best of luck and thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much and great to see you. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. 
My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>